Well, again, good morning. It's great, again, to gather. Uh, again, if you're with us for the first time, we're so glad you're here. If you're here for the first time in a long time, welcome back. Um, we are uh, working our way through a series in the book of Daniel uh, right now, and so I've been really excited about this. I hope you are um, enjoying it as well. Uh, I want to show you a picture as we get started this morning, um, and this is one of the most iconic images in modern times, iconic photographs. Uh, this is uh, a picture from June 5th, 1989. Uh, it was in the wake of the Tiananmen Square protest in China. And um, it's this picture of a lone man standing in front of this line of tanks, uh, a nonviolent act of protest uh, in support of democracy in China. And the interesting thing is we, we, we don't know who this man was. Uh, we don't know his fate. We don't know what's happened to him, whatever happened to him. Um, but what's clear, and this picture perfectly captures this, what's clear is that he had a choice. He had made a choice, right? And he had put himself in a position with that choice um, where it was going to be pain or even death, uh, even at the cost of uh, his own life and comfort. He made that choice. And so to look at this picture, for me, is to ask uh, the question, what led him to do this? What would lead this man to make this choice, to stand where he stood and do what he did? Was it you know, political conviction? Uh, was it something more? Was it faith? Um, I think that's a question that this picture begs of us as we look at it. And someone once said um, that in order to find something worth living for, you have to find something worth dying for. I think there's a lot of truth in that. To find something worth living for, you actually have to find something worth dying for. Um, and what's interesting is when you think about that, uh, we live in a culture, I would say, that, that would be deeply suspicious of that idea at a certain level. Suspicious, in other words, of the idea of such absolutism, right? Such deep kind of irrational conviction that would lead to one's own death, uh, especially if that conviction is religious in nature. Very suspicious. I remember um, when Langley and I lived in Boston, uh, we found this amazing church plant. It met right across from Fenway Park. It was great. We wanted to be there. We loved being there. We were there every Sunday. Uh, it, it was a huge part of our life in that season. Uh, but it was interesting when we were kind of hanging out with our, our non-Christian friends, people that didn't uh, know Jesus, and they kind of would find that out, that we go to church every Sunday. Um, they were very alarmed. <laughs> and especially in New England. Um, it's just a different world in so many ways. And so to find out that we were there was very alarming. Now, why? Why was it alarming for them? It was alarming because for them and for many uh, in our um, culture, religious conviction is synonymous with, with things like ignorance and and foolishness, and fanaticism, and bigotry, and fundamentalism, and, and cults, and terrorism, and just all of that, right? For, for many, that's how they think of like people who would die for something, right? And so I think, I think like thinking um, about that reality, living into that, I think on the one hand, we have to admit, as followers of Jesus, we have to admit there's a reason for that, right? There's a reason that people think and feel that way. People have done terrible things in the name of religion, in the name of religious conviction. But of course, that doesn't mean that religious conviction itself is 
the problem. Jesus himself had deep religious convictions, right? Deep religious convictions. And one of those was to reject the use of violence in any form in his kingdom. In fact, he said if we follow him, we would actually suffer violence for his name's sake. We just heard in the words of Jesus from Matthew, if anyone would come after me, would take up um, my cross and follow me. He would deny himself. That's what we just heard from Jesus. As Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a person, he bids him come and die. And I think too often, um, too often we're tempted to kind of water that call down, aren't we? We're tempted to water, uh, water it down, to make it from follow me at any cost into follow me and be content and happy, right? Or, or follow me at, when it's convenient. It's an attempt, I think, in part to make the gospel more appealing to other people. We make the gospel more and more uh, about application, in other words. Application meaning, well, what can Jesus do for me? How can Jesus make my life better? And we make it more about that than we do about God's glory, because we don't follow Jesus, right, to gain a superficial, happy, or successful life. We don't follow Jesus because it helps us accomplish our life goals or because it feels good. We follow Jesus because his way of life is true and beautiful. We follow Jesus because he's the son of God. We follow Jesus because he loves us and gave his life for us. We follow Jesus because in him we can have life in his spirit, life to the full here and now, today. And so in God, we, we find something beyond ourselves, beyond this world, something that's worth living for because it's worth dying for. And Daniel 3, that we just heard read, is about three men who knew a God who was worth living for and dying for. They knew that God. And I think this morning, God wants to challenge us and encourage us as we look at this story together. So I wanna invite you to grab uh, your Bible and just open it up. If you need a Bible, there's some blue Bibles in the seat backs near you. You can grab one of those and open to Daniel chapter three. And just as you do that, um, uh, one, one note real quick. The outline for what I'm gonna share with you, I'm actually borrowing from a friend of mine's teaching, a guy named Vaughn Roberts, uh, who I have a ton of respect for. And so it's been a gift to me. And so I wanna share that with you. And I just pray the Lord speaks to you the way he's spoken through me or to me through this. And so maybe first, just a little context for where we are as we get into Daniel 3. Uh, in Daniel, what we've discovered is there's this king, Nebuchadnezzar. And he's one of the most powerful kings in the world at this time. And he's conquered Jerusalem and he's taken a group of Israelites, uh, including these young men, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel. And he's taken them into captivity and pressed them into service of his government, of his empire. And so in part, what this book about is about is it's about God's faithfulness to them and it's about their attempts to be faithful to God in this place of exile. And so that means their story is our story, right? Uh, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. As followers of Jesus, we too live in exile like they do. We live in exile. This world is not our true and ultimate home. We belong with God in the new Jerusalem and his kingdom. But until Jesus returns, we live in Babylon. We live in the kingdoms of this world. We live in exile. 
And so life in exile can be hard. Life in exile can be hard. And Daniel's meant to encourage us that as we face constant pressure to trust in what we can see, and namely in the powers of this world over a God and his power, that we would choose God. Now, for many of us, uh, the conviction that God is great, right, that God is all-powerful and that his kingdom is the most real thing, we hold that conviction. We would say yes and amen to that. We believe that. But I think the real question beyond that is, will we act on that belief? That's what Daniel 3 asks us. Will we act on that belief? What will we do, in other words, if our faith costs us something? And in particular, what will our faith, what we would do with our faith if it actually costs us something that matters to us deeply? Will we believe in the greater reality of God's kingdom and God's power, even when it leads to suffering and sacrifice? So that's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have to decide. Would they trust God no matter the cost? So in the story, this is what what we know, this is where we begin. The king had made this statue of gold, right? And we're told that it's 90 feet high, 90 foot tall, head to toe gold. That's six and a half stories tall. By the way, does anybody know what the tallest statue in Texas is? You can probably guess. Sam Houston, right up I-45 North. It's right there. I remember the first time we drove past that thing, I almost drove off the road. I was like, what is that? It's, you know how tall that thing is? Anybody got a guess? 67 feet tall, right? So this thing's 90 feet tall. Impressive, isn't it? 90 foot tall statue that he's built. And it's very clear. The reason that he's done this is linked to a dream in Daniel chapter two. So if you've been reading along through Daniel, what you found out is there was this dream about this statue made of all these different materials. The head was gold, which symbolized Babylon, and a rock came and destroyed that statue, which symbolized all the kingdoms of the earth. The rock is the kingdom of God, the power of God. And Nebuchadnezzar heard that dream and it was interpreted to him. And you know what? He praised God because Daniel had revealed that dream to him. God had inspired Daniel to do that. But you know what happened after that at some point? he realized, I don't like that dream. I don't like that dream because it says my kingdom's gonna end and it's gonna get smashed and it's under God's kingdom. And so what does he do? He builds a statue made of gold, head to toe of gold. And what is he declaring with the statue? He is declaring that I don't care what God says, my kingdom is greater. My kingdom is greater. And so like another Tower of Babel, This thing gets presented and it stands in defiance of God and it was impressive, incredibly impressive. And so we're told that people from all over the world, they come, all over the empire, they come, right? They come and they're here for this basically like an unveiling ceremony. I don't know how you unveil a 90 foot tall uh, statue, but they, that's what's happening here. It's being unveiled and it's a picture, kind of imagine like inauguration day. You know, it's that kind of like just pomp and pageantry. And people are, are there, all these VIPs, and everyone's decked out, and it's like the civic cult of the empire in all its glory. That's what's taking place. And it unifies people, and it binds them together, and it calls for loyalty to the king and to the state. And this is what they say. They say, you all, all of you people are commanded that when you hear the sound of all these instruments, you will fall down, and you will worship the golden image of the king that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. 
And whoever does not bow down and worship it will immediately be thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. And so the band plays, and what does everybody do? They bow. They bow. They worship this thing. And you know, in the moment, in that moment, it must have been really exciting. It was an exciting day. I mean, thank the gods, right, that we live in such an amazing empire. That's what they must have thought. That we live under the reign of such an incredible king. And it must have been reassuring for them. Including reassuring for the king, who in all his insecurity felt bolstered by the total devotion of his people. But then comes this knock on the door. And some of his uh, advisors, motivated by jealousy and clearly by xenophobia, explain that there are these three Jewish men who are not bowing down, king. These guys are not bowing down to the statue. Now, it's worth noting that, that these three guys, they didn't go looking for this. There's no martyr complex here. This is, uh, is something that was happening simply and quietly as they just chose not to worship the idol. But now it's brought to the attention of the king, and we find out in verse 15, he is furious, and he demands that they be brought before him, and he benevolently gives them another chance. But then he says what? He says, if you don't worship this thing, if you don't do this, you're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. He says it again. That's what's going to happen to you. And he adds this question at the end. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? What arrogance. What arrogance from this king, right? Because what, what, what he's saying is, he's saying, look, I, I don't care about your, your, your faith, your God, any of this nonsense. I don't care about that. I'm in charge here. Your life is in my hands, and you will do what I say. You will bend your knee, or you will burn. That's what he says to them. It's, it's the kind of declaration, honestly, in one form or another, that all kingdoms and all earthly powers are prone to make. Right? All idols make this demand. Choose me or die. And so it would have been so tempting, I think, in this moment to give in, to be intimidated. They're standing there in front of the king and all his court and, and all these officers, tempting, I think, to rationalize the worship of this thing, just to say, well, you know, we'll do it. We just don't mean it. You know, we know idols aren't real. We can just, we'll just kind of do it in form, but not in our hearts. I mean, ultimately, how bad is that? You know, just giving in to this thing doesn't really change anything. We, we're still in control of what we believe. And, and, and think about all the good things we can do because of where God's put us in our position of influence. I mean, is this thing really worth dying for? You can see, right? We can connect with that. We do that, right? We rationalize when we're faced with choices like this. But they knew something. They knew what God had said. What had God said? What had God said to his people when they came out of slavery in Egypt? What did he tell them? The first two commands he gave them, he said, you shall have no other gods before me. And second, you shall not make yourself any idol. You shall not bow down and worship them. Exodus 20. And so they knew they had to choose. They knew they had to choose. And so they say, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, we answer to a higher power than you. But if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. What faith. But then listen to this. But if not, 
That's a statement of faith too. We're gonna talk about that. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I mean, can you imagine standing there in that court when these guys said this to the most powerful man in the world, basically? When they said this, they must have thought, what fools? How misguided, how unnecessary. Just, just bow your knee to this ridiculous statue. You know, it's not, you don't have to like compromise on your worship of God. You can have that too. Just go with it. The whole empire said yes. Everyone agreed. This is good. This is the direction things are going. Just get on board. Bow down and worship. And so they had to choose. And in that moment, they chose God. They chose God, which meant they chose pain over comfort. They chose death over self-preservation. That was what they chose by choosing God. Foolishness, right? Foolishness to the world. Remarkable faith in God. And the truth is you and I are going to face moments where we have to choose and it will cost us. We have to choose, and it's going to cost us a moment when idols, and not literal idols, not literal statues, but idols nonetheless, idols of ideology and money and addiction and acceptance and relationships and on and on, and they will demand our devotion. And if we choose God, it will cost us, perhaps even our lives. But certainly, in this world, we will be called fools, foolish, for making that choice, for choosing God. And that's because the world says that idols, by any name, are the way to get what you really long for, right? If you want acceptance, if you want freedom, if you want security, happiness, identity and purpose, peace, pleasure, if you want to be delivered from your pain, don't turn to God. Don't, don't turn to God. You don't need God. Turn to this. This idol will give you what you long for in the depths of who you are. That's what makes idols so insidious in nature. That's what they offer us. And this story, this story is a story of a specific idol in this moment, a totalitarian king who offers what? He offers peace and order and secure future. That's what he's offering them, right? In exchange for what? Their trust and their devotion. Now, I just want to ask you, in the last seven months, have you longed for any of those things? Just think about the last seven months. Have you longed for peace, for order, for a secure future? See, idols know the longings of our hearts. They know the depths of what we long for. And they say, don't turn to God, turn to this instead. And so here's this king saying, I can give that to you. And if we've learned anything in the last seven months, I would say it reveals that idols never deliver. Idols cannot deliver the peace or the order or the secure future that they offer. It's counterfeit. Instead, they lead to places of fear and ultimately oppression. And so there, there are idols of all kinds all around us. Not statues, but idols literally everywhere. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, uh, which is a great book, I highly recommend it. It says, idols can be anything because an idol is anything that becomes more important to you than God. Idols absorb our hearts and our imaginations more than God. An idol is anything you seek to give you what ultimately only God can give. That's what an idol is. And so I think what the Lord is asking us this morning is, where are you looking right now for the things that only God can give you? Where else are you looking? It's a constant temptation in our life. Where in your life is the temptation to trust in something other 
than God. It may come um, in the form of a promotion, just to give you an example. Maybe it comes in the form of a promotion for you, uh, you know, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, which brings financial security, but it's going to come at a cost, right? You know it. It's going to come at a cost. You can see it. It's going to come at the cost of time with your family, the cost of meaningful relationships, maybe with your neighbors who don't know Jesus, the cost of being present with your church family. You know, it's going to come at a cost, and so the, the choice is clear. It's Jesus or success. Right? It's Jesus or money, Jesus or things. Or maybe it's going to come to you in the form of ridicule from your friends. I mean, people, people will say things like, you really believe that? I mean, you really believe that about sexuality or marriage or race or money? I mean, is that really what the Bible teaches? I mean, that... Phew, that seems so backwards. That's strange, closed-minded, judgmental. That's, that's social suicide if you believe that. And so we'll be, we'll be faced with a choice, Jesus or acceptance. Jesus or being part of the group. And I, I don't know what it's going to look like for, for you and for me tomorrow and next week and next month, but... The question is, where am I looking right now for the things that only God can give? Is it a movement, a philosophy, a political party, or a leader? Maybe it's your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your spouse. Maybe for you right now, it's a bottle of wine. What will you choose? The world will never, never understand the choice to choose God over an idol. It will never understand that. It will always be seen as foolishness, as foolishness. But here's the good news in Daniel 3. It's not. It is not foolishness. Choosing God is never foolish. It is always true wisdom. Choosing God is always true wisdom. So back to Daniel 3. The king had told them, worship me or die. And then he asked that question, what God will save you? Right, if you don't do what I tell you to do. They didn't hesitate, did they? Their answer came, what God? What God will save us? Our God. Our God will save us. Absolutely. Our God will rescue us from whatever you do to us. What, what inspirational faith. And that's part of the gift of Daniel. It's meant to inspire and strengthen our faith. That's part of the gift of it. And I would say what's even more incredible and more inspirational when it comes to faith is what they say next. Because they don't stop there. They say, whatever you do to us, God's going to save us. But even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, we will never worship your gods. We will never worship your idols. They trust God, a loving, good, all-powerful God, no matter what. No matter what. God will save us, they say. But that, if that is not his will to save us, we still trust him. If that is not his will, we still trust him. That's incredible faith, isn't it? To be able to say that. And I, I think a couple of things about that. One is, I think it reminds us about the nature of faith. You know, faith is not like this power that we wield or we possess. You know, it, it is trust in the God of power. That's what faith is. To pray in faith is to trust in God and his promises, but not to presume upon him or his promises. It's to say, God, you are God and I trust you. I can say with faith, but if you don't answer this prayer, Lord, I still trust you. 
Daniel 3 teaches us to pray boldly in faith to God, to trust in his promises, to enter into the fiery furnaces of our own lives, knowing that they are the white hot place of faith where God's promises must be true. Must be true. Literally, we stake our lives on the faithfulness of God and his power in our lives. It's where we surrender ourselves to him and his power. We must say, in that moment, God, you will save us, but if it's your will not to, we trust you, we have faith. And so we must say that. We must say, Lord, save me from this trial, but if you do not, I will still trust you and worship you. Now, maybe like me, you have prayed for things. I mean, you have cried out to God for things in your life. You have prayed to God for healing. You have prayed to God to restore you. You have prayed for God to deliver you or someone you love. You have prayed uh, for a spouse. Right? You've prayed for a child. You've prayed for financial relief. You've prayed for God to give you freedom from unwanted desires within your own heart. You've, you've cried out to God for those things. And those prayers have not been answered. And I think one of the hardest things to do is to trust God in those moments. To believe that he's still there, that he still loves you. It is hard to pray with a faith that says, Lord, save me from this trial. But if not, I trust you. And that was the prayer of these, these three men. It's the prayer of Jesus in the garden. Remember what he prayed? Before he went to the cross, he said, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Lord, your will be done. See, to pray that way, if you mean it, it is not foolish, it is not faithless, it is wise, it is courageous, it is humble. It says, God, I trust you completely. I trust completely in the God that I worship in all his power and all his presence. As the story ends, Nebuchadnezzar, we're told, he, he looks into the fiery furnace. And he says, didn't we, didn't we throw three, three people in there? Why do I see four? Why are there four people in there? And, uh, and then he says, I see four men unbound walking in fire. And they're not hurt. And their appearance, the appearance of the fourth one, it's like he's like a son of the gods or something. He's something else, someone else. And whatever else we make of that moment, whether it points us to Jesus, whether it was an angel, whatever it was, what's clear is that God was with them. God was with them in the fire. He didn't keep them out of the fire, but he did go into the fire with them. You see that? He was with them. God may not protect us from the fires of affliction in our life, the fires that come through living in a fallen world with pain and loss and grief and disappointment, or the fires that come when we choose to be faithful to Jesus. But we need to understand that even though we will face 
suffering. We'll face rejection and ridicule and worse. Even though it may cost us everything, our job, our place in the community, our friendships, even members of our own family, we choose to follow Jesus and we know that he is with us no matter what we face. As Paul says in Philippians 1.21, for us to live is Christ and to die is gain, right? In other words, in our suffering, we can experience the deepest truth that God is with us always. In our suffering, we can learn to trust him even more. And I would say that's been true in my life. In the hardest moments of my life, in some of the hardest moments of my life, those have often been the places where I felt God's presence more than at any other, more deeply, more acutely. I knew God was with me. And looking back, I can honestly say, man, it was hard. It was painful. But I know that God was there. I know God was there. And did you notice that when the king says, I see four men, I see this fourth figure with them, you know what else he said? He said, they're unbound. Did you notice that? They're unbound. They've been thrown in, all tied up. And now they're unbound. And I think that says something really important. I think it says, even in our suffering, there's a gift. Even in the fire, there's a gift. There's a deliverance that comes from the things that bind us in our lives, from our idols. In our suffering is a place of surrender, a place where we can finally recognize in the depths of our heart or in the corners of our heart, we have not yet surrendered to him. We can recognize that we need him, that we need him. As a friend of mine who's fighting addiction once said, he said, for me, he said, pain, suffering was the only language I could understand. And God used my pain to speak into my life and call me back to himself. C.S. Lewis said, pain is God's megaphone. God speaks to us. He meets us. He heals us in our suffering if we'll let him. So as the story ends, Nebuchadnezzar yells, come out. He tells them to come out. They do. They're unsinged. They don't even smell like smoke. It's this incredible moment where the king who had taunted them, basically he says, now, instead of what God can save you, he says, only your God. I agree. He says, this God is to be praised and no one is to speak against this God. And so it all works out. It's this amazing story. So I want us to read the whole thing because I want us to appreciate what it is that God did here. It's amazing and it all works out. But that doesn't mean it always works out. I just want to be clear. It doesn't mean it always works out this way. The message here is not, well, if you just have faith, and you take a stand, then life is going to turn out great. That's not the message. Here's the message. Faith is vindicated in eternity because we worship an eternal God. But in this life, it will not always be vindicated. It will always be wise, but it won't always be vindicated. It means God is with us. He's powerful. That one day the idols of this world will be destroyed and he will reign forever. And that's not just wishful thinking on our part as followers of Jesus. We know that's true. Why do we know that's true? Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospels tell us that Jesus himself stood before the powers and the authorities of the world. They mocked him. And as he hung on the cross, do you remember what they mocked him with? They said, where's your God now? What God will save you? Same, same thing these three guys faced. What God will save you? 
They thought they'd executed Jesus, but on the third day, he rose again. And like these three men who walked out of the fiery furnace, he walked out of the tomb, and the wisdom and the power of God was revealed, and the ultimate declaration of the victory over the powers of sin and death in this world was made clear for eternity. Jesus is our hope. Jesus has defeated every idol, and he invites us to turn from our idols to repent, right, and to turn to him. And he, he stands ready to forgive us and to welcome us into life with him, life to the full, life forever. And so every day, every day we face this kind of choice. It may not look as dramatic as it looks in Daniel 3, but it is a choice that we all face. This choice about who will we worship? Who will we trust? And I don't know how that choice will come to you this week, but it will come. I know that it will come, and it will come at a cost. To say yes to Jesus always comes at a cost, but it is worth it. It's worth it because he's God, and we live for his glory. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life from me will find it. Let's pray.